Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Debut, a podcast that follows one crime writer and his novel from the bedroom to the bookshelf. And this is the last of six episodes before Charles E. McGarry's debut crime novel, The Ghost of Helen Addison, is published on July the 6th. We'll be back in the autumn with two update episodes. More about that after this one. You're about to hear a conversation between Charlie and Val McDermott, one of the most successful of the tartan noir generation of Scottish crime writers. Since the publication of her first novel in 1987, Val has sold over 10 million copies worldwide, and her books featuring Tony Hill and Carol Jordan have been brought to television as the series Wire in the Blood. Charlie met Val at the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. Val was about to do an event at the Signet Library just around the corner and was incredibly generous with her time and her advice for Charlie. I hope you enjoy this conversation between the two of them. I just want to ask you a bit about authenticity and I think you're very interested in authenticity and that came across from that um, documentary because you've got a friend who's a pathologist, is that, is that right? Um, she's a forensic anthropologist. I have, over the years, developed friendships with several different forensic scientists, mostly because in, in the first instance um, of my relationship with Sue Black, who's the professor at Dundee um, and head of the, the Leverhulme Centre for Forensic Science. Um, and... Um, for me, it's important to be authentic where authenticity is possible. Everybody knows that murders are not solved the way we write about them in our books. You can't write about a police investigation as it happens. You can't write accurately, if you like, about a police investigation because it would bore the living daylights out of your mm-hmm. readers by page 10. So what you have to do is persuade the reader to come on this journey with you, suspending their disbelief. Um, and the way you can do that is to make everything that you can make authentic as, yeah. as close to factual as, as possible. So if you're, if you're setting it in a real place, you put in real elements of that real place. Um, sometimes you have to invent places, but you have to know the place well enough to invent it in the right part yeah. of the city or the right part of the countryside, whatever. Um, but when you are dealing with things that are um, capable of, of authentic replication, if you like, then, then it's important to do that because the reader goes, oh yeah, I know all about that, I read about that somewhere else, or I saw that on television, or, or my friend that works in forensics told me that. So if you, if you can be as authentic as possible in those areas, it gives the reader that extra sense of conviction that what you're telling them is the truth. And would, would, would your litmus test be that a police officer, a lawyer, a medical professional would be convinced by that stuff that you can make authentic? Would you say that, that that's the standard you set yourself? 
I would say so. Yeah. Yep. Um, I would. I would expect somebody who, who is working in those disciplines to know that I've got the detail, the, the, the broad facts. Well, the facts of the science certainly. I would aim to get absolutely spot on. Legal procedure, I would get pretty much spot on. Yep. Police procedure, I'm all over the place with because uh-huh. it, you have to do what makes sense in terms of the story. But I wouldn't do. I wouldn't have my characters do something that's completely out with the scope of what a police officer would do. Mm-hmm. Just do it in, in, in a different kind of way, you know. I mean, I wouldn't have them, you know, breaking into houses or anything like yep. that, you know. Yep. Um, but uh, so in that sense, follow follow what's uh, the case. But there are a lot of times when you really don't want to have three chapters of guys knocking on doors fruitlessly. And there's a lot of so-called forensic science that is junk. Right. You know, and so you have to actually spend. If, you, if you're going to be authentic, if you, you have to spend time with the people who do this for real, mm-hmm. and the people who care about the quality of what ends up in the courtroom. Sure. Um, because there are people out there who call themselves experts and expert witnesses who are really not. Just to take you right back, all the way back, Val. 1987 report for murder. I think you were 32 when it came mm-hmm. out. Um, a mere child. A mere child. Uh, I still feel like I'm 32. But <laughs> what can you tell me about that process? What did you go through? Did you get an agent? How did you get a publisher? Was it easy to get a publisher? And if there's any advice you could give to your 32-year-old self now in terms of that process, what would it be? Mm. Well, I, I, it's a slightly complicated story. Um, when, I, when I left university, I decided that I was going to be a writer. That was that. Was that. Um, I was working as a journalist, and in my spare time, I had my first attempt at writing a novel. Um, and about which the best thing one could say is that I finished it. It was all about tortured human relationships and angst and guilt and betrayal and love and the kind of thing where somebody has to try and kill themselves in the second to last chapter. Um, and I, I sent this off to lots of publishers and, and it came back very quickly, mostly by return of post. Um, and, but I also showed it to a friend of mine who was an actor and she said, well, I don't know much about books but I think this would make a really good play. So I thought, a play, that's easy. Just cross out all the descriptions, leave in the speaky bits, and that's a play. And so that's essentially what I did. I did a bit of dialogue to cover the bits I'd crossed out and trotted off to the, the local theatre. Uh, and the director in the local theatre said, I'm looking for new plays to do a season in the studio theatre. I'd love to do your play. So by the age of 23, I was a professionally performed playwright, completely by accident. And on the back of that, I acquired an agent uh, I adapted the play for BBC Radio and I kept trying to write new plays but the trouble was I was rubbish at it I didn't know what I'd done right so I couldn't repeat it I just kept like right. falling flat on my face um, and eventually after a, a few years of this my agent fired me which was a pretty right. bad day uh-huh. <laughs> I have Good to say I mean it's probably the lowest point of my, my writing career but I was still determined that I had something worth listening to something worth reading and so I thought that perhaps what I should do would be to write something where I did have a sense of what I should be doing, and that was the crime novel, which I'd always read since childhood, really. Right. I loved crime fiction, and I'd always read it alongside whatever else I was reading. And I thought, well, I'll try and write a crime novel. And I was a bit stuck, because at that time there, was, you know, there were village mysteries, and there were sort of you know, very metropolitan police procedurals. Everything happened in London and the home counties, basically. Then I read uh, Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only. Okay. Um, and that sort of really struck a chord with me. Like Willie McIlvany's Laidlaw, it, it had an urban setting, but it had a female protagonist who had a brain and a sense of humour. Mm-hmm. She had agency. 
and uh, she had politics as well. She had, she had social politics as well as personal politics. And the interesting thing to me was that the story was organic. The story happened because it was Chicago, because people had those kind of jobs, because people had those kind of political experiences. It came from the city itself. It wasn't just randomly bolted onto a little English village. Yep. And that excited me, and so I, I wrote, uh, I started writing what became Report for Murder. Um, I still had a full-time job. Uh, I was the Northern Bureau Chief of a National Sunday newspaper, mm-hmm. so it was quite a demanding job. Mm-hmm. And I wrote on Monday afternoons, because that was, Monday was my day off. It took me two years to write the, the first draft of Report for Murder. And at the time, because of the success of writers like Sarah Paretsky and Sue Grafton and Marsha Muller and Mary Wings, Barbara Wilson from America, who had, whose books had been published in the UK, British publishers were very eager to find something similar with, um, with a UK setting. And there were a few feminist publishers around at the time who um, were prepared to take a chance on, on this kind of work. And so I sent it off to the women's press. A couple of months later, I got a letter from them saying, we'd like to publish your book. And that was that, was that really. It took uh, about a year and a half in the editorial process. And then the book came out. Back in, back in those days, newspapers didn't review paperbacks at all. Mm-hmm. And Women's Press published paperback originals, so when Report for Murder came out, it got not one single review. I didn't have an agent, and I had a shit contract. Really, it was, it was not a fanfare of trumpets, and it was kind of confounded because, on a personal level, my, my father died very suddenly just ten days before the book came out, so I wasn't really in the mood to celebrate when the book was actually published. But, as I say, it came out to a resounding silence and it just it built its momentum gradually. People read it and passed it on from word of mouth. It was the first um, British crime novel with a lesbian protagonist, um, so it had its kind of niche market, if you like, there was, and, and, and people did talk about it and passed it around, and gradually it built up its momentum. And um, it's, you know, in the 30 years since it was published, it's never been out of print. Um, and we've just actually just agreed a new deal to do a new, new set of editions in America. Gosh. So it amuses me that um, I actually get... I earn more from Report for Murder every year than I got for that first advance for it all those years ago really? because it's just been a steady... Amazingly, it's just been a steady seller ever since. Things did become more uh, mercurial for you when you won the, the Gold Dagger in 1995. It was obviously a change in uh, series... And it was now a male voice, a male character, and a female character. Uh, what can you what can you say about that? About writing from a, a male point of view? I mean, I look at it, I look at writing now, and it makes no difference to me mm-hmm. about a character's gender, their sexuality, whatever. My job is to imaginatively recreate their world. But back then, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, you, you have to learn your craft. I couldn't have written Tony Hill straight out of the starting blocks. I had to get more useful tools in my toolbox sure. um, uh, so I had, to, I had to become uh, more experienced and more accomplished as a writer and the way you do that is by practice, mm-hmm. by reading more and by writing more um, I think for most writers your first two or three books are about learning what your process is what works for you, are you a planner, are you a seat of the pants person do you like to work at the same time every day do you like to work in a concentrated slab of time once a week what, what suits you so those things take time, and then the, the skills as a writer take time to develop. Very few people leap out of the starting blocks um, as good as they're going to get. Of course. And in a sense, that's why you mentioned the, the novel that turned into the play. You, you have to mm. kind of go th- 
having myself had that initial failure. Yeah. But that's that's you learning your craft. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you have to make those mistakes and to get better at anything. Well, yeah. there's, there's maybe Donna Tart's the only person I can think of in the world who at 19 could write what was pretty much a very accomplished novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but very often when people write those, those uh, stunning accomplished first novels, that's pretty much all they do. Yes. Very often people who write that amazing debut never write anything as good again. Well, it takes and, some and, that's something, yeah, and, and that sometimes happens. Yes, you know, um, I think it's, I'd much rather be the other kind of writer. Ian Rankin and I used to laugh about be, take, us taking 10 years to become an overnight sensation. And, and I think you, you need that time. When I, the other, I think, advantage of when, when, when I was starting out um, was that editors took time to grow writers. You know, there wasn't that sense of if you haven't made it by your third book, your history. The pressure on new writers is now, I think, much, much greater to succeed early on in your career. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, made my first, I wrote my first three books. I made my mistakes practically in private. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was quite a while, but I mean, it, was, it was really the start of the Kate Brannigan books where people started to, to take a bit of notice of me. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, with, with The Mermaid Singing, which, again, was a very different kind of book. And how did things change for you then? Did, I mean, in terms of sales, was that the springboard to... It was it was a springboard. It, didn't, right. it wasn't you know a leap into the stratosphere. But, right. but what it one the, the big difference that that, that the Merman singing made um, was in foreign sales, as my agent sold me into countries that I'd never been sold in before. Right. Um, and that made a difference. Okay. Um, and my sales obviously increased in, in the UK as a result too. But it was the wider picture where it had the effect. The countries like Japan, for example, they really like prize winners uh-huh. I'd never been published in Japan before when Mermaid Singing come out they've, they've published everything I've written since some of us it's quite funny I mean like there's um, in some of the um, Slavic languages um, if, you're, if your gender isn't obvious from your first name and you're a woman they'll put Ova on the end of your name so it's, it's got, I'm McDermidova sure. and we were in um, I think we were in Slovakia couple of years ago on a tour and was looking in the bookshop so there was you know McDermott over next to JK rolling over <laughs> which, which you know I have to say my juvenile uh, sense of humor appealed appealed very much mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just to bring it back to where I am at the moment, um, I'm just completing the, the second book. I've got a two-book deal. Yeah. Um, you're obviously known for the forensic detail of, of your books that we, we mentioned earlier. This is something I struggle with a bit. It doesn't come that naturally to me. In the second book, I've got quite a complex clue line, like physical clue line, 
and I could find it quite stressful to, to actually uh, just manage that. I call it an impact assessment whenever I change anything. It's like, has this changing a clue or adding a clue can have this ripple effect all the way through? And especially with modern detective techniques with DNA and, um, and even just standard things like footprints and fingerprints, you have to think about each event in the book and what would be left behind. And another thing that always kind of vexes me a bit is who would know what when. So my guy's a, a private investigator who has a kind of uh, strained relationship with the police, but he's not going to sh- not share information with the police pertaining to a murder inquiry. So you have to make sure that the, the cops know what's going on and and where, where do the, what do the other protagonists know at one time? Maybe you're thinking he's overcomplicating this, and that's kind of my question. Do, do you hold all this in your head? Do you, or do you have some systemic way of managing your, your kind of clue line in a book? I just keep it in my head. Keep it in your head. I don't think I've ever sat down and thought of something okay. as a clue line. Right. Um, I guess what I, 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 the way I tend to think about the process, the progress of the novel, is I kind of, when I'm thinking about it, I start at the end. The crime. What's the crime? Okay. Who's done this? Why have they done this? What, what's, what's in it for them? What, I mean, whether it's psychological or emotional or, or material, what, why are they doing this? What's in it for them? And then I start thinking about the circumstances of the crime, and then I think, well, what's the mistake? Where's the mistakes? Where can the mistakes be made? Or where can the mistakes not be made? I mean, the book I'm writing at the moment is all about a, a very forensically aware cl- killer who doesn't leave clues. So, you know, so all of those things have to be considered. How does he get around this? Mm-hmm. How does he get around that? But I kind of do it backwards. You, it's a reverse engineering. Yeah. But it is a, still a form of preparation, though, isn't it? I mean, you're mm. not just sitting down and organically writing the book. You know, you've still done some sort of planning. Yeah, not a huge amount these okay. days. These days, I mean, I kind of know what my ending is, what I'm aiming for. And, and I know what, I'll know some of the key points along the way. But a lot of it, I'm figuring it out as I go along, right. as, as it sort of does grow much more organically. Now, I used to plan very carefully. I used to plan sort of, uh, in, in detail, scene by scene, chapter by chapter, but that stopped working for me about 15 years ago. Probably about, yeah, about 15 years ago. And then, and then I, so now I just do it in a much more loose way. And, you know, somebody said, well, don't you have to go back and put the clues in? Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. I seem to... Well, I know what I'm doing now, I think. I've got the, you know, I think I've got the basic yes. building blocks in my head. I know how to do what I do. But it took me about 15 books to get there. Yep. I think I've, I went from one extreme to the other. I think at the first, the first book, it was quite an organic process. I mean, I had a kind of loose skeleton. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do all that much preparation, character builds or anything. And then it was in the rewrites. That was where the kind of stress came in. So the second book, I tried to do it, engineer it all at the front to the extent that I've got this massive spreadsheet with all these clues and all that. I think I'm the only writer that's ever used this Excel spreadsheet. I'm just trying to find one other yeah. person that's done it. And I think that's how it's... Oh, there'll it's be some, there will be somebody that's done it. I mean, that, the thing is that, you know, that's, the process is unique. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. There is no recipe. There is no magic bullet. And you have to find out for yourself which way works for you. And you might find that after this experience with the Excel spreadsheet, you want to go back to a looser way of yeah. writing. Yeah, um, I think striking a happy medium yeah. has got to be the. Well, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I sort of tend to. I mean, now, I mean, I, have, I say I start in this this kind of organic way, but I do 
as I'm going through, I'm sort of kind of plotting blocks, you know, I'll sit down and say, okay, what's the next six chunks, what's the next six chapters? I've got this, I've got this, I've got this going on, I need to do that, that, that and that now. And a lot of scribbling on bits of paper. I find hotel notepads are the perfect size okay. for writing notes. I think that the, the thing is also that, that's really important is to stay excited about your story. Sure. You've got to keep that, keep being interested in the story. And, and so for me, I think one of the, the things about writing the way I do now is that um, is the things I discover along the way. As I feel more confident of, of, of the characters, and I feel I understand better what they're doing and what their role is, other possibilities open up to me. Uh, and that allows me to... Um, to send the book in directions I hadn't entirely expected. It's not about characters suddenly surprising you, because that's, mm-hmm. that's bollocks, I think, frankly. Yeah. I think people say the characters just went off and did their own thing. No, it's not how it works. Uh, you know, nothing comes from, A character doesn't do anything that doesn't come from your interior life. What happens is that, as I say, as you, as you understand your story better, and as you have walked with the characters and through the things that they've done so far you, you have an understanding of better understanding of who they are and what possibilities they offer you you know the character in the same way that the forensics and everything else has to be congruent within its own universe so do the characters have to behave mm-hmm. within their own universe and when they don't there has to be a reason why that's right and sometimes um, that can be very revelatory uh-huh. about a character well it's like what does someone do under stress that's when you mm-hmm. find out what someone's quote-unquote character is. That's the great thing about the crime novel. Everybody's under stress. There's a body in the middle of this book. Yep. And sometimes people under stress will do something that not even they thought they were capable Mm -hmm. of, like in warfare, for example. Talking of character, my guy is this fellow called Leo Moran. Like some of your characters, he's he's a bit of an outsider. He's a PI. He's actually a psychic detective. So he has visions that are oblique, with which he helps police if the police are interested in uh, cooperating with them. I've got, as, a, as I've mentioned, I've got two books worth of them, and I've, I've got a pretty fleshed-out idea for a third. Beyond that, I'm not all that sure, and it just it, it made me think about Lindsay Gordon, Kate Brannigan's series. Is, did you decide in advance, before you wrote those last books for those two, that you were going to take a pause from them or finish with them? Did you ever worry that, you were, that a certain character was going to run out of steam? What happened was Lindsay Gordon was supposed to be a trilogy. Right. And I knew I was going to write a trilogy at the beginning um, because, to be honest, the book I wanted to write was the third one. And I couldn't figure out how to get to the third one without writing the first two. So I knew all along that after I'd written three Lindsay Gordons, I was going to write something different. And I started writing the Brannigans. Uh, and then um, I, I gave up my day job and started writing full time. And I was halfway through the second Brannigan and I, was, I wanted to kill her. I was so bored with her. And then I, that was when I discovered that I can't write books back-to-back with the same character. Right. Because when I was writing Lindsay Gordon, I was still a journalist. I was still doing lots of other things as well. It wasn't just focusing on that every day. I didn't have any, I didn't have any plans about how long the Brannigan series was going to run. Okay. And so I started writing the Brannigans. I wrote, and then, I, then, of course, having decided I'd finished with Lindsay, I had this brilliant idea for another Lindsay Gordon novel. So that kind of... What happened with Lindsay was that the original trilogy and then three other books came along because I had a great idea that worked for Lindsay really well and essentially I'm too lazy to come up with a new character when I can use an old one. Um, And with Brannigan, I I wrote six of them and I didn't realise that the last one was going to be the last one. I just... She stopped talking to me. It's the best way I can put it. Over the years, I've, I've had various ideas of returning to her now but I think it's, I think it's too long and it's too late and Manchester's too different now mm-hmm. and so, I, so she kind of got left behind uh, and I've never had any sense of an arc of a series yeah. 
you know, when I wrote Merman Singing, it was meant to be a standalone. Um, but then as I came towards the end of it, I, I, I realised that the characters of Tony Hill and Carol Jordan offered me lots of possibilities, both in terms of them as individuals and in terms of the kind of cases that they could investigate. Uh, and so they just carried on. And I have no... I had no, I've never had a series arc planned for them. It's always been the case that towards the end of one book, I've started to think, think about the next one and had a sense of where the next one might go. And, you know, one day that might stop. Karen Perry is another one. Karen Perry was not meant to be a series detective mm-hmm. at all. But it's just, again, it was laziness. You know, I had, I had a, a cold case detective already. I thought I might as well use her. Um, so, so I end up with, with these sort of like slightly uh, mad time scales because the books happen in real time. All the books are very firmly anchored in terms of time and place, but the characters don't age in real time. Yep. So the Tony and Carol books are, what, um, 22 years now, and they've actually aged about 10 years, 12 years maybe. Karen Perry's the same. You know, that's, again, what, 14 years, and she's aged about three years. And that's fine. It's yep. my universe. I can do that. Sure. I've read about that recently. It was that yeah. Ripley had a read... Yeah. They just, someone described it as mythopoetic it's like Sherlock Holmes you know you can yeah. just stay the same age and I kind of realised well I want to do that as well because I want my guy to have experienced certain things in the, in the 60s and 70s in his, his childhood and in his youth but I don't want him to be any older than 48 so yeah. he's, you know as you say I just have to insist that yeah, this one took fine. place in 09 sure. and this took yeah. I mean there's, there's different ways of doing it I mean you know Sue, Sue Grafton basically has kept her books anchored in the 80s so there's a sort of like year or two years between each book. The the time scale in the book is only like a matter of maybe weeks yeah. or months. Ian Rankin aged Rebus in real time, and now he's decided he's not yeah. going to age Rebus in real time anymore. Well, he's just going to keep writing Rebus. And that's that's the trouble. Is that um, Neil and my favourite crime authors, um, apart from Val, is uh, James Lee Burke. Um, Dave Robish Dave Robish should be in a wheelchair by right. now <laughs> but he, you know he's, he's a Vietnam veteran yeah. so that just ages him yes. you know yeah. and uh, Val I heard a, a snippet of you on Radio 4 recently about the working day and I know The Guardian have got a, a series of articles about the working day at the moment and I, I'm really intrigued by that how artists work where they work and there's something just something about what you said that really popped in my head that you have the radio on at the time I just not when I'm working. Oh, not when you're working. No, okay, no, 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 not when I'm working. No, right. No, no. I, I have music. just like some ambiance no. in the background. I like music, but, but it has to be music without words ah. or words that I didn't understand. So Sigur right. Ross is fine, you know. Okay. But Ricky Ross isn't he? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Can you say anything about your working day? I mean, you've got such a commitment to um, your public life, and this being a, a case in point, and it's it's very good of you to give up your time. Is, are there times that you just close off any public engagement? I, I try to. Right. I really try to. I mean, the, the beginning of the year is when I'm supposed to stay home and write. And that's fine with me because the weather's miserable and you might as well be indoors yeah. writing. But things encroach. People go like, well, this is when the festival is. Yeah. Uh, or, or whatever something is. You know what I mean? Like, this year I went to the Quai de Polar in, in Lyon at the end of March when I should have been home writing, which is why I'm still here at Am in May, still writing. Um, but when I'm when I when I when, it, when the time of the year comes round to start, then then that's when I spend as many days as I can at my desk or on the train writing. I st- I, it starts quite slowly. Um, I have to kind of feel my way into the book now that I'm doing it this way instead of just like, making the plan and then writing to the plan. 
and so for the, to begin with, you know, there'll be a lot of days when I write maybe 500, 800, 1,000 words to begin with. Um, and then it starts to pick up speed as I feel more confident about knowing my world and knowing the people in it. And then when I get to the last furlong, as it were, um, I'm usually writing about 5,000 words a day. Goodness me. Because it's there and I need to get it down. And on that, are you ever worried that if, you, if you're on a train and you're writing, you're presumably going to an event... Or, or going, going break, home, or going home, yeah. but that the formula would break the flow that you're going to that you're going to lose whatever vein of creativity you're on at that time. Does that ever happen? Are you ever worried that you've lost you've lost ideas, or, or not, do they always come back? Not to really. You? I mean, I think, um, but particularly towards the end when the momentum is really going, it's, it's it's much more present to me than anything else I'm doing. But at the beginning, when I'm kind of drifting into it, um, I you know I do a lot of rereading going back to the beginning and rereading, reading myself back in and thinking, what have I left? What have I, have I spent enough time with this character? Do I need to go back to this? You know, to try and keep the balance right through the book. So that's kind of how I do it. It's, it's when I've been away from it for a, a few days, then I go, I read myself back in. Is that a, a print-out job with the, the red pen? Yeah. Or, yep. Yeah, I, can, I, I mean, I, I, I can't edit on screen still. Yes. I'm old school in that respect. I mean, I write on screen all the rest, but but, mm-hmm. but but when it comes to actually, somehow the word, words on the page you have a different relationship with them. It's the strangest thing, isn't it? Mm. Just the, the the things you pick up when you print something off. Just conscious of time and. It's all right. But you know, I think we've really got through everything I wanted to, and I just really appreciate that. Bill. That was great. Thank you so much. And there are two two pieces of advice I would give you. One is, um, one of the things I found really useful is identifying the time of day that I'm most productive. Yeah. And, and focusing on working at that time yep. of day, wherever possible. Um, there's no point in trying to write at seven o'clock in the morning if you don't wake up till mm-hmm. eleven. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever written a decent sentence before eleven o'clock in the morning. Yep. You know, uh, so it, it's it's find that way that time works for you, and, and use the time that's most fruitful, most fruitfully. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say is get an agent. Okay. Publishers, publishers are not your friend always. They told me they were my friends. Yeah, they did. They were, and, and and they would, you know, they'd be very nice to you and all the rest of it. But you know, you'll not get you'll not get the best deal from a publisher. You know, I mean, I, I've had the same agent for twenty nine years, and much of my success, I think, has been because she's done the right deals at the right time with the right people, and she's not taking any crap from anybody. When you're starting out, you don't know what you don't know what a good contract is. You don't know what a good deal is. You don't know what rights you should be reserving to yourself, what things you should give to them to deal with. And, you know, they're not a charity. Definitely not. They can get someone out of you for nothing. Believe me, they will. Yep. So get an agent. OK. Yeah, and, and now you're published, it's much easier. Yes, indeed. How many things have you changed publisher, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, I started out with the Women's Press and then I moved to HarperCollins. Right. Um, well, Vibes. I went to Galantz, then my editor went to HarperCollins, and I went with her. So the question is more how many editors have I had. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was at the Women's Press with, with the Lindsay Gordon books. Uh, then I moved to HarperCollins, and then um, nine books ago, I moved to Little Brown. So I've had, I mean, I've had two principal editors in my career, and, and they both edit the way that I like to be edited. Okay. My agent believes that putting a writer together with a publishing house is actually more like a marriage with an editor. You find people who are compatible because there's editors. Yes. You know, there's editors at my publishing house who are very, very good editors that we'd come to blows in a week. Yep. 
They've got to get you and they've got to get what you're trying exactly. to do. Exactly. Yeah. Have, have you had experiences with editors that, that haven't worked out? Yes, um, yeah. I mean, my first book, for reasons it was nobody's fault, really, I had five different editors. But I, I did do one book later on, another Lindsay Gordon book later on, and I said to my agent, I will only do another Lindsay Gordon book with them on the condition I never have to work with that woman right. again. Um, so, yeah, it happens. But my main publishing career has, has had two very good editors. Well, long may it continue. Ah, well, I hope so, too. <laughs> Debut is produced by me, Neil White, with help from Martin Gregg. There's more at debutpodcast.com and you can let me know what you think of the show on Twitter at debutpodcast. Thanks again to Val for talking to Charlie for this episode. She has a new novel out in August, Insidious Intent, featuring Tony Hill and Carol Jordan. The music for this series is by Charlie's brother, Mick McGarry. Keep up with Charlie on Twitter at Charles E. McGarry and at charlesemcgarry.com and that's it for now. Charlie's novel is The Ghost of Helen Addison. It's published by Polygon on July the 6th. We'll be back in the autumn with two update episodes. In the first, we'll catch up with Charlie to find out what happened next. We're going to follow him around some of his promotional gigs. We'll speak to booksellers to see how it's faring against the competition. We'll read the reviews. The second update episode will be recorded live at Bloody Scotland, the annual crime writing festival in Stirling, on Sunday, September the 10th, 2017, at 2pm. I'll be on stage with Charlie at the Curly Coup. And here's the best bit. It's a free event. Check out bloodyscotland.com for all the details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 